Today, we are in our final Sunday teaching about base camp. Regular, systematic, daily, preferably time with God, with some simple practices that will help us develop a robust faith in and for real life. They're not a measure of our spirituality. They're, they're a key means to developing our relationship with God and our personal character as God's image in this world. We can do this, at least get started, in 15 minutes or less. We're going to see about the less today a bit. Um, focusing prayer, reading the Bible, and then some concerted prayer. I thank you for some of you who have talked to me how this little simple pattern has already helped you transform your practices. After today, it's over to you which is a scary thought for some of us because we've resonated with the teaching about it. We realize the importance of it, but there's still some, oh my goodness, how do I actually do it? Hesitance and some, will I be able to follow through on it? Resistance in our heart, right? Or apprehension anyway. So our teaching this morning will have three parts. We're going to hear a story about one, how one base camp movement got started and the impact it had. I hope it inspires us to believe that it's worth it to, and to push through some of those hurdles in our own hearts. And then we're going to take time to walk you through some of the resources that we've begun to develop to, uh, to help you begin and develop and sustain the practices we've been talking about. And number three, we're going to spend uh, hopefully the majority of our time, uh, teaching time looking at an inner core to tap into that might help us get started. And stick with it. So those are the three things we're going to be doing. So first of all, the story. It happened in the late 1800s at Cambridge University in England. And it was made famous by a group that came to be known as the Cambridge Seven. Whoa, back up. I passed one. Where is it? Lost. Okay, it got lost. The Cambridge Seven had a beautiful picture of these old men from the 1800s who were young men at the time. And they were bright and committed students at Cambridge University. Several of them were star athletes, rowers, cricket players. One of them was uh, probably one of the best cricket players in the world at the time. Equivalent to sort of NCAA all-stars today. And, and one of them was a brilliant physician in, in training. And their days were absolutely packed with studies and lectures and practices and games and and at Cambridge University, the bull sessions that they had, that they were famous for, and for some of them, a very active social life. But God got their hearts. And these men, along with a whole bunch of other people at the time, fell in love with Jesus. They wanted to keep the fire in their hearts alive. And so together, this group came up with a plan. They decided to dedicate and to hold each other accountable to spending the first minutes of every day alone with God, reading the Bible and praying. They didn't call it base camp. They called it the morning watch. The idea spread. A whole student movement in Cambridge University, other universities in England, and, and then in North America. And the slogan with which they held each other accountable was remember the morning watch. As they met each other during the day, they'd say, did you remember the morning watch? But although they realized it was absolutely essential, it didn't come easy, especially with their rigorous studies, the demands of athletic performance, getting out, in the bed, getting out of bed in the morning, 
was, can you believe it? It was hard. One young man, his name was Thornton. He was absolutely determined to find a way to conquer his, what he called laziness. He wanted an automatic, foolproof, foolproof way to ensure that he would follow through in the morning on his commitment the night before. By the way, that, that is what it takes. It does not begin by saying, or even allowing ourselves to think, well, we'll see how I feel in the morning, right? Toast. It's not going to happen. Thornton so badly wanted to begin his day meeting with God, he invented and he set up beside his bed his own get-up machine. He set up a fishing rod and a reel by his bedside table. I'm not making this up. He did it. And at the end of the line, instead of a hook, he put a clamp and attached that clamp to the sheets at the foot of the bed. And he developed this mechanism by which the vibration of his alarm in the morning would trigger the reel to rip the sheets off his bed. <laughs> so he had to get up. He was serious about beginning his day meeting with God. It was out of this movement that the Cambridge Seven got together. And eventually these seven men joined Hudson Taylor who had recently gone to China and started what became known as the China Inland Mission, which led to the solid establishment of the church in China, a church which, when foreign missionaries were expelled from China 80 years later, during the Cultural Revolution, it spread like wildfire to now have more Christians than any country in the world. It began with a small group committed to base camp together. Regular, systematic, time-with-God practices centered around reading the Bible and aligning and releasing prayer. Wouldn't you like to see what God might do in you, through you, through us, as we commit ourselves personally to developing and maintaining simple base camp? Dave, David, come on up. And let's get down to talking about some of the, the practical details of getting a base camp going and, and some of the resources that we are starting to put together uh, to help people do that. Alrighty, thank you. Let me just put those books up here, Dave, I think. So, first of all, thank you to both of you. I'm going, to, I'm going to get motion sick here. <laughs> All right. Thank you to both of you for partnering with me on this and, and the work, David, especially that you've done in helping us try to put some wheels under it. So, but let's talk first of all about why, uh, why do you think um, there's so much interest in this? We, I mean, we've all heard every mm -hmm. week we hear people who say, whoa, this is what I need. Why, why do you think there's so much interest in it? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people I talk to want to read the Bible, but they don't know where to start. They don't know how long they should be spending. They don't know if there's a format or they've been told to do it one way, but it doesn't work for them. And so mm. they're just, there's a, a desire to want to do it, but I guess an unknowing of where to start. Same idea. This is a great thing. We know we should do it. How do we begin? One of the things that has really encouraged my heart in that is that I sense in it a, a desire uh, on the part of people to own their own spiritual development. And, and that 
that is that's powerful and yeah. and it begins with being self-feeders on God's word and not spoon-fed and uh, whether it's sermons or blogs or podcasts let's let's get into God's word way to go mm-hmm. that's great so what are some of the main questions you've heard from people I think it's a lot of uh, the mechanics of it so how do I read the Bible where do I start uh, how do I make that a uh, practice uh, every single day? How do I fit that into my daily rhythm? What does, uh, what's that going to look like, and how can I get that established? David just keeps stealing the answers right out of my mouth. It, it keeps <laughs> over and over again. If I want to read the Bible, how do I do that? What sort of format do I have for my prayer life? What does that look like? Okay. So we, we've talked about some simple stuff, and one of the questions I've had is, it's okay, I do that, but where do I go from there? What, what are some additional stuff? So let, let's start there and then come back to the stripped-down stuff. Uh, so in addition to that 10 or 15 minutes of reading and praying, what, what has been a helpful practice or idea or resource for you to, to, go, to go take next steps and go deeper? You're the better-looking one. You go first. Uh, <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, one practice I've really enjoyed is owning a book of the Bible. Uh, and so by that, I mean taking one book uh, and going back through it uh, over and over again. So with uh, something shorter, like an epistle, you can read it in its entirety in one go, but you can also go into it uh, in section by section or chapter by chapter. And so instead of reading you know, a chapter a day and finishing it in a couple days, read a chapter a day, but go through it a few so times. Uh, one of Paul's letters, okay. so Corinthians, Romans, anything yeah. like that, and just going back through it over uh, a few times. And I did that a little while ago with First and Second Timothy, going back through it, and you get a lot deeper understanding of what's going on, some of the context, and then some of the teaching that comes out of that. Yeah. So uh, it's funny because when I was when I graduated from college, it's the first thing I did. I took the book of Colossians, and mm-hmm. I that I owned that book for several years and read other stuff. But every once in a while, I'll come back to go deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, own yeah. a book. That's a great one, Dave. Uh, I grew up on Wheel of Fortune, Vanna White. Huh? Uh, I like a study Bible. I, I'll read Isaiah, I'll read Exodus, I'll read Ephesians, and I'll go, well, what does that really mean? I can't comprehend the idea of what the author is trying to say. In a really solid study Bible, will give you about half a page for everything that you read, some insights, some depth, some understanding of the book, the author, the time it was written, and all that. Very helpful. So this isn't something you're going to be packing to church? doesn't fit in your pocket. No. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Great. I, one of the things that I have uh, begun to do is, is to have uh, beside my, not, not in my study desk, but in my, beside my reading chair, I have just a one-volume commentary. And as I'm reading through something, getting what I think out of it, I, I just go to a small commentary and say, you know, what, what do they say? They're, they're, we have a couple on the Resources, re- page. resources page we're going to talk about, but the one I use is the Moody Bible Commentary. It's, it's, it's really great. Just occasionally reference it. Cool. There's other, other things like um, it, it took me about four different cracks. I, I, you know, you, people said, you've got a journal if you're real spiritual, and I tried four times, three times. I couldn't do it. And one day, it just came naturally, and it, it, but I did it my way, not the way everybody else said you're supposed to do it. So, yeah, cool. Um, anything else? Uh, about 15 years ago when I was on my internship, I thought I'm going to memorize large sections of scripture. So rather than just a verse or two, I picked uh, 1 Corinthians 13, I picked Colossians 3, I picked a couple books of the Bible, memorized the whole thing. Hmm. Well, for me, I, I and, and I'll, again, I'll refer a little bit later, I, I often take a section, but, I, but memorizing a small verse and just keep repeating that over and over for a while is uh, cool. Yeah. Um, so, Dave, you're a very disciplined person. 
and talking about this whole business of how do I put this together, talk to us about some key pieces to the discipline of it. So if you're taking notes, here's the three things you need to know. You need to pick a time, you need to pick a place, and you need to pick a plan. So the time doesn't have to be I'm going to do this at 6 a.m. or I'm going to do this at 10 p.m. right before I go to bed. A time could be an idea. So for my wife, we have three preschoolers at home. Once we put the three kids to bed, that's when she does it. So it could be at 7.30, could be at 9.30, but that's her time with God. Uh, a, a place, where are you going to spend time with God? Are you going to do that in a reading chair like Mel mentioned? Are you going to do that at a, a desk somewhere? Are you going to do that in a coffee shop? Pick a place so that you know at that time, at that place, you're going to spend time with God. And then what's your plan? Uh, how are you going to read the Bible? How are you going to pray? And then make that part of your daily and weekly routine. Absolutely. I love that. When you said that this week, I thought, that's it. Time, place, plan. That's, that's really the three decisions you have to make. And, and, and that's all. Awesome. So let, David, let's talk about plans. Yeah. Uh, take us to our website for a bit, or at least some screenshots about our website. I can do that. Uh, and before we get to plans, though, let's, let's uh, talk about some of the other resources that we just talked about that we're making available yeah. on the Internet. Yeah, so over the past few weeks, we've talked through a few different resources. You might remember uh, Sid and Mel talking about SOAP. Uh, Mel talked about REAP, which are some Bible reading frameworks. Uh, we've talked through some prayer um, frameworks and different ways you can use some of that. So we don't want that to just be something that you wrote down once and is gone, but we've been taking that and trying to keep it on our website and create a, an archive of resources for you guys to use and to continue to grow. And so if you go to our website, this is it right here, uh, there is a tab on the top called Resources. Uh, and if you click on that, it'll pop up this little menu, and there's a whole page called Spiritual Practices, and it looks a little something like this. Uh, it's got Bible reading, prayer, and triads, which is the together component of, uh, of Basecamp and how we can do that in groups. Uh, we also have sections on Bible memory, journaling, and other spiritual practices, and those are just things that we're continuing to expand. So those right now don't have a lot on there, but we're going to be filling those pages up with uh, resources on how you might be able to journal, uh, Bible memory, and then the other spiritual practices, we're going to be continuing to fill that up and continue to add to this, uh, this library. Cool. So if you never read the Bible, where do I start? Where do I start? What are some options? Uh, so if you go to our Bible memory page, uh, it's going to have kind of a little bit Bible of... Bible memory? The Bible reading page. Bible there reading. we go. Okay, here we go. Uh, if you go to our Bible reading page, it's going to have a little bit about what the Bible is, and then it's going to have these resources. You can kind of see there's a section resources and Bible reading plans. Uh, and so if you go into that, uh, if you've never read the Bible, one place I think would be really good to start is Reap, uh, and that's read, explore, apply, and pray. And so that's a four-part framework you can use when you're studying the Bible. It's a way to just get into the text uh, and draw out some of the meaning so that you can take that and apply it to your own life. That's one really good place to start. Uh, if you're looking for a plan um, to have your time, place, and plan, uh, there's a few plans up there. There's going to be more coming up. Uh, one of the plans that I think is really great, it's the Bible in One Year. It's an app. Uh, it's done by Nikki Gumbel, who's a part of the Alpha Course. And so he and his wife have written a devotional every day. And then you do a section out of the New Testament, a section out of the Old Testament, and then a section out of the Psalms or the Proverbs. Uh, and it's guided. It's about 15 minutes every day. And it's all available as audio. And it just does a reminder on your phone. So it's super convenient. And it's a really great way to tackle reading the whole Bible in one year, but in really small chunks that are pretty accessible. So when you click on that pill, there's going to be a link there that yeah, shows Yeah, and I'll right? link it, and okay. I'll take you right there. Perfect. Yeah. So, David, reality hits sometimes, and we don't get to read our Bibles every day because of whatever happened. Uh, if you don't do it in 12 months, do you have to play massive catch-up, or can you run it in 15 months or 14 months if necessary? Yeah, you can take as long as you want. It's going to give you a start date, but you can catch up during the week if that's going to help you uh, keep going, or you can just check it off as you're coming to those days. So 
if you need to take a break, if you miss a day here or there, that's not a big deal. You can just keep coming back to it and working your way through it. And that's one of the reasons that I like the next one we got there, the, the uh, what's it called? Uh, no, 63 days. I can do 63 days in one year. It works. Uh, 63 days through the whole Bible, not every section of the Bible or not every phrase in the Bible and passage, but uh, one of the reasons I like this is because it talks about the narrative arc of the Bible, the, the, the stages of, of the, uh, the, the stages of human history and where God has taken this world, where it started, where he's taken it, and just a key section from each stage. And, uh, and I think that's a, that's a great way to get the whole, uh, a big picture of the whole in 63 days or however long it takes you to do 63 days. Anything else? Dave, you're, you're excited about yeah, one other one. If you're brand new to reading the Bible regularly and you think, man, a Bible in one year or a Bible in 63 days, that's intimidating to me. Starting next week, we're going to open up the book of Joshua, which is a book found before the birth of Jesus. And Mel and I are committed to every week doing five different readings. Uh, the first reading of the week will be the passage that we looked at on Sunday. The other four readings will be from the Old Testament, perhaps Psalms and Proverbs, uh, the Gospels, uh, and then, as uh, David mentioned earlier, the Epistles. So really simple to just read uh, less than a chapter a day to kind of begin that journey of what does it mean to engage with God on a regular basis. Mm, cool. Yeah. David, you got something else going on. Yeah. Uh, one of the other ones is the Bible app. This is what we talk about every Sunday. Uh, there's usually a slide that says go to bible.com slash app if you want to have a Bible available on your phone at all times. That's the version Bible app. Uh, there are 2,000 and some translations on there and 1,300 languages. So if you speak anything, you can probably find a translation that's going to work for you. Cool. Um, but it's a, it's a really great app. There's a ton of built-in reading plans, including some of these Bible in one year plans. There's also plans that are as short as a week uh, if you want to do something more topical on Sabbath or prayer. Uh, things like that. So you can really dive in at different levels. Uh, it's pretty accessible. It's also very social. So you can add friends, you can share plans, you can make notes and highlights and share those with people. You can do reading plans uh, in a group. And so then you'll, during the same reading plan, you can share kind of your thoughts. So and how reading it's plans in a you. group, are we, that's where, are you guys going to develop an app that we can work together on? A triad app? Training in oh, app development, okay. but uh, we can get there. Okay, cool. Long term. So the key is that there's there's no there's no one of the messages we want to give you is there's no one size fits all. We can't tell you what to do. You need to experiment. You need to work with it. Work with somebody else and plan it. You're going to find something. Uh, but David, just really quickly, what other resources are we making available right now? Yeah, so on the Bible reading page, there's a few other things I'd like to highlight. Uh, there's this deeper study resources page, and so if you pull that up, uh, it brings up a document. It's got a list of some study Bibles, uh, some how to read the Bible books, some one-volume commentaries, kind of like what's sitting on the table right here, uh, as well as some online resources. So if you're looking to go deeper uh, to get a little more historical context or kind of know where the what's happening in the Bible uh, when you're getting to what you're reading, those are some great tools for you guys there. Uh, we're also adding to these pages pretty consistently. So if you go to prayer frameworks, there's going to be on that prayer page a few things going up. Uh, Bible memory and journaling are coming, but those are going to be out pretty quick. And we're going to continue to expand the resources that are in there uh, cool. just week by week. There'll be new stuff. So Awesome. So great. Uh, Dave, there's one more thing that you desperately want to talk about that you're excited about. Melf says I have to talk about it because I'm the pastor of Group Life, so apparently my job rests on what I'm about to say for the next three minutes. Uh, we have three different ways of doing groups here at the church. One is big groups. That might be ladies' morning out. That might be Friday night youth. That might be prime time. And a whole bunch of people get together, always open, all the time. And you can check that out. Some people love that. 
Some people like the whole small group idea where six or 12 people gather together on a Wednesday night to uh, read the Bible, to talk, to engage in what's happening on a regular basis. And that's uh, wonderful. We have about 25 small groups. If you want to contact me and say, hey, my wife and I, we really want to be part of something like that. But something that I personally love, something that's my wheelhouse, is triads. Triads are the same gender, groups of three to five people who gather together um, as much as they want. They can be once a week, it can be once a month, to talk about the the Bible, to talk about what's going on in their lives, and to pray together. And this is something that I think is incredibly valuable. It goes deep really quick. So that's for some people. It's not for everybody. Uh, and I think that's something when we talk about reading the Bible, about praying together, about holding each other accountable, a uh, fantastic uh, way that we think group life can work here at Ellerslie. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm excited about on that resources page is the on, some of the online resources. Uh, very bottom there, Dave re- uses Study Light. I'd often use biblehub.com, uh, a very easy and, and uh, uh, an accessible way to, to look up the meanings of some of the words. And, and with any of this stuff, you guys, um, if I, I'm, Dave's committed me to five, I thought it was four. So I'm going to commit them to something. The answer is yes, by the way, to this question, just, okay. just so you're asking. <laughs> if anybody says, calls you and says, hey, I, I, I really don't mean to intrude or bother you, but would you help me with some of those resources? What's the answer? I'd love to. (laughs) It is not an intrusion. What we want to do is we want to help you. So if you want help with any of this stuff, the answer is yes. Awesome. Uh, Thank you guys so much, and thanks again for the work that you're putting into helping uh, helping us do this. Awesome. So, moving right along. As some of us enter this time, the question on our minds is, how is this going to be any different than any other practice that I have embraced? How's it going to be different than when I took on that eating plan and it lasted? <laughs> yeah, you're laughing. You don't want to admit it. That, 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 that exercise plan that we've started and abandoned, We're gun-shy, right? As we finish our base camp teaching today, that's our question. How does it start? How can I make it stick? And there's there's really, it has everything to do with one word. We're going to take a long time to get to that one word. But that one word has to do with this that we're going to experience today. The ceremony Jesus called us to celebrate but I'd like to begin at a, at a much broader level, big picture level. I, I just want to share with you a little bit of my own journey, uh, not specifically just about base camp, but that has everything to do with base camp. And the secret, if there, if, if there is such a thing as a secret, the one secret to having it stick, and by stick, I don't mean you never drop it for a period of time, it happens, but a secret that will help us get back on the horse again sooner than before. Occasionally, People ask me, so Mel, how did you become a pastor? And I never know exactly what it is they're asking, but sometimes I'm pretty sure what they're asking is, how in the world did a person like you become a pastor? I know that sometimes that's a question because one person said it to me once. You seem like a pretty unlikely guy to become a pastor. Whatever that meant. In high school, I was uh, dating a girl from our youth group. It was one of those high school relationships that never really had this DTR conversation, just sort of happened. 
And, uh, but in the summer after we both graduated, she took the lead in that conversation, and it had a very definitive, I'm moving on message to it. Uh, the only rationale she gave me that stuck was, you know, we're really not meant for each other because I'm pretty sure you're going to end up being a youth pastor, and that's not for me. I still have absolutely no idea why she thought I would become a youth pastor or a pastor of any kind, because that was the last thing on my mind. I didn't even like church. <laughs> really? Why would I be a pastor? Now, I was committed to attending church. I knew I needed church, uh, but I didn't like church. I rarely even went to youth group because I was, well, I was a basketball player. Friday nights when youth group was, was all absorbed and practices and everything. I, I didn't have time for youth group. So why would I become a youth pastor? About a year and a half later, I had that pivotal awakening that I talked about several weeks ago when I read that statement from the prophet Jeremiah where he said, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And I realized that I had begun to fall in love with God's word. I resonated with statements like the book of Hebrews where it says the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. It, 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 it pierces to the point of dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow. In other words, it exposes our innermost being and it is able to judge the desires and thoughts of our hearts. And I got that. I love, this, this was my verse for a long time, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God breathed and is useful. I love that. It's useful. I could use it for teaching for myself and others, rebuking correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Training, I got that. I, grabbed, I was grabbed by another verse in 2 Timothy where he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And when I looked at what that correctly handles meant and realized that it wasn't just about it was about understanding clearly what the Word of God actually said, but it was about using it to steer. It's, it's a word that's used for guiding on the rudder of a ship who correctly steers through life with the Word of truth. I love that. And through a few other circumstances, I saw that, that perhaps my future lay in helping people live in and live out of this life-giving Word. But I still had a problem. Church, pastor, was, was not in my frame of reference. And maybe, maybe a college teacher, maybe a camp director, but not church. And then in my senior year of college, I read what was a brand new book at the time called Sharpening the Focus of the Church, which went back to the New Testament and worked through the New Testament and laid out a vision for church that grabbed me. I fell in love with what the church could be. And several years later, I was granted the privilege of being an intern in the church that was pastored by that author. For four years, I was an intern, and to this day, we're still occasionally in touch. But there was still one piece missing, a piece that came gradually over time, something I, I can't give you a time and a place or a pivotal, ex pivotal experience that caused it to happen. Looking back, there was a sign of what was missing in, in, in what parts of the Bible I, I was gravitating towards, and, well, actually, the parts that I avoided. I, I know this may seem strange to some of you, but the part I did not resonate with in the Bible was the book of Psalms. I, I could accept, I mean, 
the, the, the Psalms was poetry. I wanted principles. I, I love Psalm 1, which talks about founding your life on the Word of God. I love that. I could accept Psalm 23. I, 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 that it, it, it resonated with me, partly because partly I heard it from a child and memorized it. Psalm 119 was great, which is all about the Word of God. I absorbed that. But beyond that, I, I, I read the Psalms, but I just didn't resonate with them. But to make a long and fairly undramatic story short, what, what I came to realize in retrospect was that while I had loved the Word of God, I knew the Word of God. I could use the Word of God. I had not used it in the central way God wants us to use it to help us fall in love with the God of the Word. I didn't intentionally avoid it. I just... For some reason, I, I just really didn't know how to grow close to him. I heard the question of Jesus to Peter. The last question Jesus asked of Peter, do you love me? And, and I was sort of like Peter. Yeah, yeah, Lord, I do love you, but, but, right? I can't even tell you all of the factors that made it happen. Like I said, I know that some of it was being able to live the experience of the gift of marriage learning to love my wife, which I still realize I fall short on, and even more so learning to believe and accept and be amazed that she really did love me and would love me in spite of the fact that I was not yet fully loving her. It also had to do with the fact that God allowed me to experience some hard times and some dry times during which God's word was my only anchor. I didn't give up. But I, I, I don't know when it was, but one day I looked back and I realized that I could honestly say, God, I love you so much. I realized I could say, Lord, let anything happen to be, just don't leave me. I could pray with the psalmist when he says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And that statement became more than a theological issue for me to process. Does God ever leave someone who becomes his child? I realized that that was my relational reality. I couldn't live without God with me. And I began to resonate in my heart with other statements from, of all places, the Psalms. Psalm 42 one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. When I first read that, I said, yeah, that's exactly my problem. I didn't want to be a pastor because I don't want to love going to church. But I didn't let myself see where the psalmist went with that. When he says to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. The reason he longs for the place of worship is that he longs to be with other people in the presence of the one who is worthy of worship. It's not just about doing church. It's about seeing everything, including church and base camp practices, as a way to meet God face-to-face, -face, as face-to-face -face as is possible through his word and through prayer. Psalm 84, how lovely... or. Uh, how lovely is your dwelling place? Where are we? 
How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. There's it again. But where does he take us? He's not crying out for church. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And I realized that I could pray with the psalmist in Psalm 63 when he says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. There's only one thing that will keep you going and inspire you and draw you back when you fall. And it's falling in love with the God of the Word. It's not just about being in love with the Word of God, nor is it being in love with experiences of God. Some of us are in love with experiences. But the question is, are we in love with God? Do you know how you know? It's when the experiences, the props, are removed. There came a time in my journey when the props were removed. I was no longer forced by my job to be in church, to be in the Word. I entered a time that I just knew would be a desert period. And as I sometimes say, when somebody asked me at that time, what are you going to do now? They only knew me as a pastor. And they said, what are you going to do now? I said, well... I guess now I'm going to see if I can be a Christian if I'm not a pastor. That person looked at me strangely as thinking this was just part of my weird sense of humor. And I said, no, I'm serious. Because what I was really saying is now I am going to find out in my experience if I'm really in love with the God of the Word or am I just in love with the Word of God. And as I entered this time, I thought to myself, you know, I know I'm entering a desert time, so what part of God's Word would help me most? As I was thinking about this, I thought, well, what about that book written by Moses after this desert experience that he had led God's people through, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness? Led them? Well, sort of. They weren't really that leadable. But uh, the, the book he wrote after that experience was the book of Deuteronomy. And I thought, maybe I will learn some things that, that I can avoid, that they went through. The, uh, the, because I, I knew in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, it says that all these things in the Old Testament, the story of God's people, were written for us to keep us, or as examples to us, to keep us from drifting away like they did. I didn't want to drift away during this time. I was on a road building crew in the wilderness, literally, in order to do base camp before leaving at 6.20 to get to the shop where we had to leave from every day for this 10, 12, or sometimes 14-hour day, I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning asking God to meet me in the book of Deuteronomy. If you ever tried to read Deuteronomy at 5.15 in the morning, you know that if God meets you in Deuteronomy, there really must be a God, and He really must want to meet you. The most enduring thing I took away from my time in the book of Deuteronomy was one statement. Just two or three days into my journey through that book, I put it on a three-by-five card with me. I carried it with me for my six months in the desert. It's a summary statement of what Moses taught the people at the end of their wilderness journey about how they were to interpret all of this 40 years that they went through to correct their thinking, 
shaped their perspective on wilderness so that they were ready for the land of promise. As I meditated on a statement again and again, I just knew it was God talking right to me. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this vast wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord, has, your God, has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. First time I read that, I thought to myself, wait a minute. Is Moses really saying what I think he's saying? The Lord, your God, has blessed you? In all the work of your hands? I, I thought he was talking about the wilderness, the desert. And then I thought, well, it's 5.15 in the morning. I've obviously been half asleep as I read what was leading up to this. The wilderness was a time of judgment, wasn't it? It's not a time of blessing. Maybe he's helping them see back to the time before the wilderness so they can remember that time. And, and the wilderness would just be erased away because of that time before that they remembered so I went back and read chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 all over again to see where he had changed subjects. But I had read it right when Moses said, The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He's calling those 40 years of desert wandering, 40 years of God's blessing. How many of those people do you think thought of those 40 years of desert as 40 years of God's blessing them? As God punishing them, certainly. As, as God tolerating them, maybe. And those who were really faithful, who exercised their trust muscle to the max, they would have clung to the belief that one day they would again live in God's blessing. But here Moses is saying, you don't get it. For 40 years, God has been blessing you. If someone said that to us for an, after an extended wilderness experience, most of us likely would have said, well, if what I've been through is God's blessing, I sure wouldn't want to be in his bad books. But Moses clarifies how God has blessed them. He had guided them in and through the wilderness. He had been with them, a visible cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and they had all they needed to survive. They didn't, they didn't enjoy eating the same thing every day, but it was all they needed. And so as I read this statement from Moses, I made a commitment to myself and to God that although I had no idea what my desert time would involve, nor how long it would last, just remember, Lord, I don't have 40 years. But I made this commitment. I don't want to come to the end of my desert whenever that will be and have to be told, Mel, can't you see it? Through all this time, God has been blessing you. I have been with you. And so I went through that and said, I want to know you, Lord, through this, in this, in every experience of every day. And every morning I prayed, Lord, I believe there will be a gift today from you. Help me see it. And every evening I said, Lord, thank you for this gift today that I saw. Let me just, I'm going to end my journey right there, but let me, let me put this together, um, wrap it up a little bit. Uh, to be human is to desire. That's, that, that's one of the core pieces of being human. We want things. We desire and we have deep desires. And to be a fallen human, which we all are, is to have our desires somewhat mixed up and somewhat disordered and never quite fulfilled. We all live in that condition. We are created to long, to desire. But we were created 
to long for God, to walk with God. Oh yeah, hand in hand, so to speak, but, but allowing His hand to be the guiding hand. But in the fall, it's not just that we were separated from God and distanced from God in a factual and objective kind of way. What happened is that we attached our longings for God to other lesser things. But those longings are still there. They're hidden, but they're there. They're, stor- they're distorted, but they're there. I love the way Larry Crabb puts this all into a word picture uh, in his book, Understanding People. He says there's sort of three levels of longing. The surface things that we all experience all the time are casual longings. Desires that we have that we wish for, convenience, comfort, personal preferences. We prefer that it doesn't rain on a holiday. We prefer that our car doesn't break down. Now, if these things go unmet, we, we can have some legitimate disappointment, but if our happiness depends on them, we're pretty much out of touch with the deeper needs of our heart. And then there's another level that he calls critical longings. These are, these are valid expectations we have, especially in our deep human relationships. We have a valid expectation for being loved and affirmed and respected. We have a valid desire, a legitimate desire, a deep desire for a partner who will be that for us and who will be faithful to us. I'm I'm just going to quote Crabb here. He says, if these longings are unmet, there are serious consequences. We hurt, we grieve, and we ache. But again, if our joy rests entirely on these, we're not living in light of the core desires of our souls. Because at the heart of it all is the crucial longing that we were created for to live an experiential, real relationship, to walk with in light of the God who took it on Himself to bridge the gap we had created and to draw us back into loving Him with all our hearts. If you're a parent, you have, I still remember the time, the first time when I was home and our son came home uh, from school as an elementary school student, and he was whiny, and he was irritable, and he was whatever, disagreeable. And my wife said, honey, you're hungry. Let me get some food into you. He wasn't in touch with his real desires. We all lived there. And there have been once, twice, when my wife has said to me, honey, you're hungry. Let me get some food into you, Right? We all live there. And if you're using Brace Camp to to try to buy God to deliver us on some of those things that are not core longings, it won't last long. But if we're using Base Camp practices, reading the Word of God to to get to know the God of the Word, there'll be something we can't do without. So let me ask you a question. Have you allowed yourself to be wakened to the true longing of your heart? That's the key to having the motivation to get it started, to making it stick, and to starting it again. Allowing yourself to be awakened 
to the core longing of your heart for God and God alone. Not just to do life right, not just to have a feeling of peace, but to know God. So what does that have to do with this? Well, what do we call this? We, we have some interesting um, feelings or misunderstanding about what we call this, right? I mean, sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper, uh, which, okay, that's a takeoff on, on, on the event which implemented it, the Last Supper. And it is time of supper with Jesus, I guess. Um, some traditions call it the Eucharist. A Eucharist is just a, a transliteration of a Greek word, which means thanksgiving, which is a takeoff on what Jesus said when he implemented right? He gave thanks for the bread and for the cup. Okay, that's okay. Uh, but some traditions call this Holy Communion or communion, which is a bit of an archaic word, religious-sounding word, but perhaps it's a word we need to revisit. You know what communion means? It comes to us in English through the Latin translation of a Greek word that means intimate fellowship. The longing for communion with God, sharing in meaningful, deep, life-giving relationship with the God who has entered the creation that abandoned him to bring us back to himself. So, as we go into this time, the question that we need to process is, is this really communion? Is it? Is it communion for me? It can be if I've allowed my heart to be awakened to the true longing underlying all other longings. The only longing that can be truly satisfied which puts all other longings into perspective as this shows visibly and tangibly that no matter how great my longing for God, He, He has a greater longing for me than I could ever have for Him. He has proved it. And He's paid the way, paved the way for me not just to get right with God, but to relate in communion with God. It's communion that Jesus is longing for. Remember his last question of Peter? Do you love me? His last invitation to us, coming to us after he had risen through his word to John, is Revelation 3, verse 20. Look, I am standing at the door, knocking. If anyone opens the door, I don't need another invitation. I will come in and I will have intimate fellowship, eating together with him and he with me. Servers, why don't you come forward? The uh, Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians, when he talks about sharing this meal together, he says we need to do this by examining ourselves. And so what I'd like you to do in terms of examining ourselves, sometimes we think of, oh, is there some sin I committed this week that is a bit of a barrier that I need to get rid of? But you know what? We need to do that. But there's a deeper question. The deeper question is, is this for me really communion? Have I been awakened to the longing to see and know the face of God above everything else? And do I live that way? Would you make it communion for you today?